The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Well, a very warm welcome to this Friday edition of Scorebox. We're live in London, of course, with Karen and Jeff, and from the sunny shores, not really, uh, of Lake Como here for the Ambrosetti Spring Forum. Here are your headlines. So Vladimir Putin is playing his Trump card, issuing a presidential decree demanding unfriendly countries pay for energy in rubles or face a supply cutoff. If these payments are not made, we will consider it a failure of the buyer to fulfill its obligations with all the ensuing consequences. The European House Ambrosetti CEO Valerio de Moli tells CNBC that policy decisions that have led to European energy dependence on Russia were naive and wrong as he hits out at the Russian president's invasion of Ukraine. We hope that demo democracy will prevail against aggressions, against, against authoritarianism, against uh, the Tsarism that Putin is showing. US President Joe Biden confirms the US will release a million barrels of oil per day in an effort to tackle rising prices, the largest ever tapping of American oil reserves. The Fed's preferred inflation gauge hits a 40-year high as investors now look to today's non-farm payrolls jobs data for clues on the central bank's rate-hiking path. Covid curbs take a bite out of China's factory activity as Beijing extends a lockdown in the country's most populous city, Shanghai. So a very warm welcome to the programme, everybody. Let's kick off with this latest news from the Kremlin. Russian President Vladimir Putin is demanding that gas exports be paid in rubles or else countries he deems as unfriendly will have their supplies cut off. Putin had been threatening to make the move for weeks, despite many world leaders indicating it would be a violation of current ga gas contracts. European states say the move is an attempt to blackmail the continent. The White House called the Kremlin decree an indication of the country's economic desperation. Well, President Putin added foreigners must also use local accounts for payment. Today I signed a decree that establishes the rules for trading Russian natural gas with the so-called unfriendly states. We offer counterparties from such countries a clear and transparent scheme. In order to purchase Russian natural gas, they must open ruble accounts in Russian banks. If these payments are not made, we will consider it a failure of the buyer to fulfill its obligations with all the ensuing consequences. Well, obviously, the consequences of that for many states would be that they'd have to open an account at a Russian bank, probably Gazprom bank, and buy their rubles in that way before they could pay them back to Russia. Clearly something that states are not keen to do at this stage. And, of course, energy security, also a dominant theme at the European House Ambrosetti Spring Forum. Steve is there and joins us now from the shores of Lake Como. What noise already, Steve, there from that event about how this energy crisis is going to be managed? 
Yeah, you know what it's like, Jeff. You come into these events pretty cold. You come into these events thinking you know what's going to be said, and then within 24 hours, uh, that's completely turned upside down. And it's absolutely fascinating in, in the panel I've already moderated, in the interviews I've already done, that a country such as Italy, which has got, let's be brutally honest about it, a multitude of historic problems, political, uh, economic, uh, societal divisions, um, concerns about what immigration from North Africa and, uh, and the Middle East has done to this country uh, compared to the support that sometimes been lacking uh, from Northern Europe as well. So there's all those historical issues and the issues that Mr Draghi and his national unity government are, are trying to work through. Then you get uh, a tragic war, an invasion, a uh, conflict uh, of Ukraine from Russia, and it just turns everything on its head as well. So all of those enormous issues which Italy is confronting, and of course the recovery from COVID perhaps being one of the biggest ones over the last two years as well, they, they don't pay into insignificance, but they become secondary as well. So every single conversation here uh, around the Ambrosetti Spring Forum, and I do like Ambrosetti because it's more intimate perhaps in some, many ways uh, than WEF, so you can actually really kind of hear what a lot of people have to say rather than a lot of the grandstanding as well. Uh, it becomes all uh, about the war. It becomes all about the relationship with Russia and, and how Europe and the world reacts as well. So I'll just go through some of the tape we've uh, already accumulated since we got here yesterday because I think it's fascinating just listening to what people have to say rather than me uh, talking editorial as well. So first of all I spoke to the, uh, the CEO, the man who organises this event actually, Valerio De Molli as well, and we were talking about the ramifications that are so negative for Europe and the world from this as well. But one positive that many people have talked about is What's happened to liberal democracies? What's happened to Western unity? What's happened to unity within the EU as well? And I asked him about that as a consequence uh, of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We hope that demo democracy will prevail against aggressions, against, against authoritarianism, against uh, the Tsarism that Putin is showing, um, which is really incredible. No one, no one would have uh, expected that. No geopolitical experts, no macroeconomic experts. Yes, there were, there were rumors, uh, you know, we had with Crimea, we had with Ossetia, with Georgia. We had, we had other examples of the Tsarism, but somehow was always justified by, you know, something. In this case, there are, there are no really justification. It cannot be seen as a justification, the NATO issue. But there is an argument. Yes. And I understand that argument, that Europe has been naive. Uh, and perhaps the Merkel era typified that because Frau Merkel believed that you could bring Russia into the system, that you could make it economically inextricably linked to Europe and to Western Europe particularly as well. That looks very naive now. Yes, you are very right. Now, if you look back to that uh, decision, the Merkel decision, it seems naive and wrong, very wrong. Uh, you know, but with, uh, with, <laughs> with the analysis of the facts today, it's easy to say that uh, probably at that time was not that wrong, as a matter of fact. You know, we are talking, uh, uh, we are talking about a huge country with great nat natural resources, uh, and why not considering a peaceful development and a peaceful relations uh, uh, with that country? Why not? There is nothing wrong in aiming 
uh, on a peaceful enlarged Europe. Now, if you look it back, it's naive and wrong. But we went all in. We went all in with a uh, full energy partnership, leaving ourselves reliant as a, as a Western European uh, arena, uh, an economic block of dependent on the Russians. In our lifetime now, do you think we will ever be able to trust the Russian government? Yeah, that's a very good question. Probably not this Russian government. Maybe a future one. Who knows? But is it just about Putin or is it about something that many people fear is bigger? There is an ultranationalism going on in Russia that transcends Mr. Putin himself. Yeah, that, is, that may be a very good point. Frankly speaking, I don't have an, a, a, a direct answer whether it is only Putin or whether we can hope for something different, better, more democratic, more peaceful. Uh, if that is the dream, uh, and if in that area uh, there is a revolution, let's say, within Russia, with the new Russian elite coming up, um, in that case, I think we, we may very well start a new way of a new dialogue. There are not real premises to do a peaceful dialogue now. It seems so absurd, everything. And that's what I'm talking about. I have a deep cynicism about European business in many ways and how it just wants to get back to normal. It just wants to go back to how things were because of the economic cost of doing business, what it means for their shareholders as well. But I think there's something bigger going on here. I may be, again, we've used the word a lot of naive in the lot, but I think what I'm hearing now is that it just can't go back to how it was. We just can't actually rely on... Vladimir Putin's government and perhaps any Russian government in the short term for our energy needs. But in the meantime, of course, Jeff and Karen, you were talking about the standoff that we're having at this moment with Vladimir Putin. So I've been speaking to uh, the Italian government already. In fact, we spoke to Mr. Cingolani this week. We spoke to Mr. Damayo. I've now spoken to Alessandro Tode, who is the Under Secretary for Economic Development and for who one of the key challenges is how Italy weans itself off Russian energy in a very short term period. And that is stunningly difficult. So I did ask uh, Alessandra Tode uh, about Europe getting off uh, Russian gas. Can it, was my question. We need to be quick. We need to implement uh, the right strategy. Diversification, obviously, and uh, uh, the use of LNG is, uh, is definitely part of the, 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 the adoption that, uh, the, that we have to do. But I believe that uh, we need to mix in the right way the adoption of renewables uh, and the adoption of uh, uh, diversification of gas. What about the security of supply? A lot of people have talked about renewables just not being able to provide that at the moment for Europe, for Italy. I believe that renewables has to be used for what they can be used. So electric power together with charges, uh, and uh, uh, I, I, I believe this mix uh, can, can help. But obviously industry has to be supplied by, uh, by the right uh, energy mix. So in this moment we need to don't be focused only on one specific sources. Uh, we, ha we have to mix and we have to work in order to, to, to adopt, uh, to, to adopt what, what is useful for the country. If it were to, would, would we be back to business? as usual? Would we carry on buying as much Russian gas and oil as we did beforehand or have things changed for a very long time? I believe that we, we need to think that uh, business as usual, it, it will be very hard to, to succeed uh, after this war. So we need, I, I believe that we need to think about a new normal. We need to think about uh, the, uh, how to help uh, our economy to not only to survive but to transform, uh, to be adapted to this new normal.
And we're talking about big decisions here, aren't we? We're talking about building infrastructure in the Baltic to uh, northern Germany, to Poland, to the Baltic states. Uh, here in uh, down to the Mediterranean, we're talking about a vast amount of infrastructure getting East Mediterranean LNG and Qatari LNG onto the continent. So these are big financial decisions at a period when, of course, uh, Minister Todde is also trying to uh, enact her part of the transition. Amazing the people you speak to here as well. I had a, a long panel, an hour and a half, with uh, Stefano Pontecorvo, who is the former NATO senior civilian representative in Afghanistan. He was basically the man who was coordinating the 120-odd thousand people who got out of Afghanistan in that two-week period uh, from the Hamid Karzai airport uh, back in the middle of 2021. And he's witnessed NATO uh, intimately for the best part of a decade as well. Uh, and again, the big questions about what NATO has been like he was saying there are certain parts within NATO during our panel that basically are just rapidly and well, rapidly that's my word but very very anti-Russian as well way before this crisis as well but I was saying I asked him about that and this is the second question which you'll, you'll listen to in a moment as well but but what about the NATO alliance is it invigorated now does it have renewed focus let's listen Putin has managed to, to, to revitalize completely the alliance. I have, uh, being an ex-alliance guy, uh, I believe the alliance has a strong role to play. Uh, I think they're being very wise to staying out of the conflict. Uh, um, as an Italian, I understand perfectly well that the alliance will look more at the east than it does at the south, but uh, the um, problems are multiplying also in the south. But is part of the problem, uh, as I, I think you were saying earlier on here at Ambrosetti, that NATO has an anti-Russian bias? Isn't it natural that it has an anti-Russian bias? It is natural, and unfortunately, uh, Vladimir Putin uh, has justified it. Uh, I do believe, however, with a, with a little bit more of wisdom and uh, political sagacity, we might have avoided getting where we are. Yeah, Mr. Pontecorvo was a fascinating man. He was talking about um, ramifications from the German rearmament as well for the new spending on defence and how that could challenge at some stage uh, the French primacy when it comes to military affairs in EU. So again, you know, potential conflict there. Well, not conflict, but disputes further down the line as well. And the weaponization of the dollar and, and they're saying, just look, vast amounts of the world are just not using dollars now, are just not interested uh, in the same Western values we have and that China will be uh, the perhaps longer-term beneficiary from a lot of this as well. Big questions raised by Mr. Pontecorvo as well uh, already here at the uh, European House Ambrosetti Forum as well. We've got a lot of uh, guests coming up actually over the next uh, 48 hours, including uh, on Scorebox. We'll talk to Heiner Flasbeck, who is an economist who's got some very interesting ideas uh, on inflation. He, he comes from the Keynesian school as well. Uh, we'll also be speaking to Carlo Cottarelli, who was at one stage the Prime Minister designate uh, here in Italy as well and he's, he's always very interesting on what Italy is doing and what Italy isn't doing and what the challenges are as well and um, we'll hear a little bit more from Mr Damoli a little bit later on as well but let me hand it back to you both for now. Steve thank you terrific coverage and we're looking forward to the interviews plus the changing scenery behind you it's looking absolutely spectacular at this hour. Uh, elsewhere, President Joe Biden has announced the biggest ever release of U.S. emergency oil reserves. 180 million barrels a day for six months will be released starting in May. The president said the move will help curb rising petrol prices and general inflation. He also called on oil companies to increase production. WTI plunged 7% on the news before stabilizing. Oil prices had already lost some ground on media reports of the president's plan. 
Biden called the move, quote, unprecedented, but insisted it wasn't done unilaterally. This is a wartime bridge to increase oil supply until production ramps up later this year. And it is by far the largest release of our, net, of our national reserve in our history. Folks, I've coordinated this release with allies and partners around the world. Already, I've we have commitments from other countries to release tens of millions of additional barrels into the market. Together, our combined efforts will supply well over a million barrels a day. Nations coming together to deny Putin the ability to weaponize his energy resources against American families and families and democracies around the world. OPEC and its allies have agreed to stick to a modest oil production rise of around 430,000 barrels a day starting in May. OPEC Plus, which includes Russia, is resisting pressure from the US and its allies to pump more to help ease prices. The group also decided to ditch the International Energy Agency as a data source, a move analysts say could add to the tension from the West. A Paris-based IEA has also been pushing OPEC Plus countries to ramp up output. A bit of news from Santander, so let's have a look at Banco Santander and see what they have to tell us this morning. Um, the headline effectively is a reconfirmation of the 2022 targets here. The bank then goes on to say that in terms of its exposure, uh, does not have a significant presence in Russia or Ukraine, and its direct credit exposure is negligible, around 80 million euros in total. I think the market is fairly cognizant of this, given the fact that in terms of its uh, relative performance against the sector, it's done a little better, I think, against the broader uh, Eurostoxx banks, given that the market recognised early on after the invasion that it had very little presence in those uh, relevant markets. Um, the bank goes on to say it will confirm today at its annual general meeting the bank expects to maintain high profitability in the Americas while seeing improved profitability in Europe efficiency and cost of credit remain in line with the plan and our underlying ROTE above 13% and fully loaded CET1 capital ratio at 12% in the first quarter. Commercial activity has remained strong with revenues in line with the last quarter and new lending returning to pre-pandemic levels increasing by an estimated 8% year on year. The group says it will also seek approval at the AGM for a final dividend against 2020. 21 results of five euros 15 cents a share to be paid from the 2nd of may 2021 uh, sorry 2022 be interesting to see whether there are any questions here for the management team at this agm about banamex this is the uh, city business in mexico that's currently on the block at the moment and i know santander is being speculated as one of those parties that would be interested given their Latin American exposure. It gets more interesting now as we talk about these global businesses, right? It has been during the pandemic where you've seen waves of the pandemic hit various places, which has had a very bumpy impact on the earnings. But I think now if we look at the inflation story and just how growth has been derailed in some places of the world more than others, I think that's going to be interesting when you look at this business. And, you know, if we just point to Spain, for instance, they mm. had consumer prices that hit 9.8% year on year in March. But yet they're pointing to activity remaining strong and lending activity strong. Mm. At what point does that start to bite in Spain? Everywhere. I think that's the challenge, isn't it? And that's why the economists are having a tricky year this year, trying to figure out just how much this inflation will eat into demand. Yeah.
We're going to squeeze in a quick break, but coming up on the show, COVID curbs take a bite out of China's manufacturing sector as the country expands lockdowns in parts of Shanghai. And we'll be across the latest on how Europe aims to cope with the potential disruption in Russian gas flow. Stay up to date with our coverage on our Squawk podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. It was a week-old finish to what has been an incredibly volatile month of March. Twin effects, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the impact on supply chains, inflation, global growth. But of course, a central bank now that is fixated on anchoring inflation. So we had markets that were just roiled into the finish, particularly uh, late day. We saw the sell-off that took place on the S&P 500. This was uh, one of the sharpest drops we've seen in an hourly trade uh, for about three weeks. And uh, some of the traders pointing to volatility caused by a fairly large large quarterly options trade. You can see by the finish down 1.6% on the S&P, Dow, Nasdaq all setting back. Big name stocks like Apple also under pressure. But just worth noting how far we travelled over the course of the month. We were firmer than we fell fairly aggressively before picking up some of the action, narrowing, minimising some of the damage. If you think about the S&P 500, that was uh, firmly in correction territory, only down about 6% off its record highs as it closed up the trade for the quarter and for the month. So quite a recovery that took place. If you look at individual sectors yesterday, if you were seeking a little bit of window dressing, you could see there was a downside in financials, down more than 2.3%. Utilities, though, one of the better performers, only a fraction off from the flat line. A lot of the volatility coming from bond markets and just whether we are looking at some recession signals being flagged up and uh, an inversion that's taken place over the course of the month. You can see it on the 5 and the 30 year. Uh, 2.5 is where the yield is at the 5 year. 2.48, two basis points below that at the very long end of the curve. But also have noticed just how close this 2 and the 10 year is. Uh, fairly flat almost to 2.37, 2.38. Uh, is where the 10-year is perched by comparison. So it is an area we're watching very, very closely, but uh, huge moves we've seen in this particular area of the market. It's meant to be the safest of safe paper, so typically it doesn't move so aggressively, but we have certainly seen over the course of the month fairly large moves in this bond market. Uh, 1.58 percentage points on that two years, what we've witnessed over the quarter. Uh, this is the, the most move we've seen in uh, the quarter since 1984, so <laughs> fairly decent uh, stride higher is what we've witnessed and it's had that ripple effect across pushing money into the equity markets seeking some of the more defensive uh, resilient growth areas of the market just in case we are seeking or looking at a hard landing here on the back of central bank policy to tackle inflation. I want to take you to the oil markets. It's also been a stunning area to watch over the course of the quarter and the month. Brent prices today, WTI, again setting back. And just as we were finishing off the month and quarter, another dose of market moving news in the form of the release from the SBR by Biden, effectively trying to trim some of the price escalation we've seen. But over the quarter, for Brent prices, we've seen a 38% spike 
uh, over the course of the month, though, we saw a rise of roughly about 6.8% before uh, the finish yesterday, where we pulled back about 4.8%. So you can see in comparison to those very large moves, a bit of a tame session, although one to the downside. Gold was also a standout, of course, for the month and also for the quarter, but uh, holding on at this level, 1937 is what we're witnessing for the so-called safe haven trade after a spike of 6.8% for the first three months. Let's take you to Asia and what we're witnessing across those markets. We have a little bit of a weak start to the second quarter, dipping into the red for Japan, Hong Kong, down eight tenths of a percent. Shanghai looking a little bit more resilient at this point, despite challenging news flow on the ground. Australia flat to slightly weaker at this point, Jeff. Thanks very much indeed. Let's spend a bit more time then on the China story. The planned widening of lockdowns in Shanghai came into force today. Many of the city's 26 million residents are not allowed to leave their homes. Public transport has been suspended, while businesses considered non-essential, including restaurants and shopping malls, have also had to close. The city's government made the lockdown decision, despite official figures showing local cases falling for a second day in a row. China's factory activity slumped at its fastest pace in two years in March as rising COVID cases and the economic fallout from the Ukraine war triggered sharp falls in production and demand. The private gauge measuring activity in China's manufacturing sector fell to 48.1 in March. That's down from 50.4 the previous month. Those numbers broadly in line with the official PMI data released on Thursday. Well, let's get out to Sam for more on this story. And Sam, I see ING, just the latest bank now to cut its growth expectations for the first quarter of the year here for China. And I think investors have got an interesting decision to make today as we wait on non-farm payrolls data, given that the Chinese markets will be closed, I think, Monday and Tuesday for Qingming Festival. So how bad was this latest stretch of data? Good morning to you, Jeff. Well, this is just really further evidence of the profound impacts that Beijing's lockdown-heavy zero-COVID strategy is really having on factory activity. And the numbers we got today weren't entirely surprising, given that the official manufacturing and services sector PMI we got yesterday painted a pretty grim picture of the situation on the ground there. Of course, we know the Taishin survey does look at the smaller and private firms in China. And so what this told us was that they saw conditions deteriorate a lot worse than the bigger and state-owned firms and that came as we did see of course those lockdowns in the manufacturing capital or I should say hub of Shenzhen and the financial capital of Shanghai as you were just talking about which is on day five of what is supposed to be a nine-day two-stage lockdown we know that that has now been expanded and extended and so in terms of what we saw there manufacturing production uh, and also those new orders actually Uh, contracted the most since February 2020 at the height uh, of the outbreak. And we also saw uh, foreign demand uh, taking a hit as well. Those export orders uh, also suffered the most in around two years as uh, some of those companies really struggled to get some of those shipments out. As we know, these lockdowns have been taking a hit to transport and that is uh, holding up things as well. Those inflationary pressures also continued. So not only did we see the impacts of the lockdown 
lockdowns on manufacturing, but also those high raw material costs that we saw uh, throughout the month of March really weighing uh, on some of those companies. Those input costs actually rose the most uh, in around five months, and that prompted some of those companies to actually have to uh, pass on those costs to customers. So really, we have seen the government responding to this, trying to help out the SMEs, but there are a lot of hopes and expectations that we could see more stimulus uh, coming this month. And economists say that is really needed to really propel that economic growth to that 5.5% GDP growth target that the government is punching for now. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.